0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by Adil Shamji, the new Liberal MPP for Don Valley East and a former emergency room doctor. Adil led a fascinating career before politics, as you'll hear from him directly about, including work in remote communities, supporting homeless shelters, and more. He's now one of only eight Liberal MPPs, and so he has far too many critic roles, including health, Northern Development, Indigenous Affairs, and colleges and universities. And while the focus of our conversation is predominantly healthcare, of course, Adil rightly steers the conversation to other issues as well, with the view that all policy is health policy. Adil, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure is entirely mine, Nate. So it's been great to see you in action in the legislature already, but not everyone knows who you are just yet. You are a new MPP and a small but mighty caucus of 8 for the Ontario Liberal Party for those who are less familiar with how you came to politics and what you did before politics walk me through how you arrived at the madness of joining politics but also <laughs> what were you doing before that that led you to this
1: as a person i've always been driven by the desire to help people and that you know combined with my interest in science led me to pursue a career in medicine I graduated from medical school and all of my training about ten years ago qualified in family and emergency medicine. And from day one, i I wanted to go where the help was needed the most. And so I started out as a, as a family doctor working in Northern Ontario, Northwest Territories and the Canadian Arctic, oftentimes in rural and remote communities, you know that had severe shortages in physicians, lack of access to primary care, many indigenous communities. and it was apparent working in all of those settings that, Far too many individuals were seeking help for acute medical illnesses that were really a consequence of social issues. Um, Indigenous people who were depressed or suicidal because they didn't have places to live, because they lived in abject poverty, because they were dealing with decades of intergenerational trauma. And I never really felt as though I was fundamentally making a difference, essentially just putting a bandaid on a gaping wound. And so that made me think more in terms of the big picture, led me to consider uh, the role of government and public policy to pursue a master's degree in that, and then to try and amplify my impact and amplify the stories of, of people across our country who are, you know, the most vulnerable and don't don't get to have their voices heard. When I finished my master's degree, I COVID was just about to you know was just about to land on at our doorsteps, and uh, I served as medical director for eleven homeless shelters across across the city where we dealt with COVID outbreaks. You know, we were at the front lines of the opioid crisis and through all of that even then it was just apparent that if i wanted to have the impact if we wanted to achieve the impact that needs to be had for vulnerable people in our healthcare system i needed to find a way to be at the decision making table and it felt as though queens park was this time where the help was needed the most and it's what made me interested in throwing in my hat with the ontario liberal party you know, so I can be a, a voice of reason and an advocate for, for the people and patients of Ontario. And that's that's what has brought me here.
0: You mentioned serving the needs of the vulnerable and, and you're indicating, I think, a desire to address the social determinants of health. I want to get to those bigger conversations, but there are also short-term challenges that the healthcare system is immediately confronted by. And you're mentioning a long-standing issue that you sought to address individually and in the labor challenges and labor shortages in rural and remote communities. But we are now seeing labor shortages and challenges all across this country, particularly acute here in Ontario, where we see emergency departments closing in many different parts of this province. What, in your view, should the government be doing to respond to this crisis, to treat it like the crisis that it is, acknowledge that it is a crisis maybe to start with, but but how should the government be
1: responding, in your view? It is an incredibly complex problem. And there's no single solution that I think can navigate us out of this crisis. But as you were alluding mate, I think step number one is to call it what it is. And it is a crisis. It's true that jurisdictions across the country and around the world are experiencing similar pressures, but I would argue not to the same degree. And that's not an excuse to throw in the towel and say, there's nothing left for us to do. So, you know, taking a, a, a sort of broader picture perspective on on the approach, the steps can be divided into two. There needs to be an operational response and there needs to be a strategic response. And when I talk about an operational response, I'm talking about the day-to-day reactions to the pressures that we're experiencing across our healthcare system and the way that we collect data, interpret data, release that data and make sound evidence-based decisions based upon that. And it has been clear, especially since the last election, but throughout the pandemic, that there has been an absence of leadership. In the most recent example, you know, throughout the summer, Minister Jones simply has not been showing up to present a credible plan to keep emergency departments open, intensive care units open, and hospitals accessible to the patients that need access to that care. And so step one is an operational response. Someone, a leader, taking credible action and and stepping before the people of Ontario every single day to, you know, on a regular basis, say where the problem is. Discuss an extremely short-term plan on it to redeploy assets, move healthcare workers around, and find a way to Im- immediately ameliorate the pressures that are happening in specific regions or specific hospitals across the province. So there's, there, there is a vacuum of leadership that speaks to uh, the need for an operational response, and then there's the broader strategic response, and that's where the that's where our policies and uh, and government priorities really, really come in, and it's apparent with this government, you know, number one, that from a from a priority perspective. The Ford government prioritizes infrastructure and does not prioritize people. That is most clearly articulated in Bill 124, which, uh, which caps public sector wages at, at 1% at a time of unprecedented pressures in our healthcare system, at a time when our healthcare workers are more burnt out than they've ever been before, and at a time when society is more expensive than it has ever been before nurses, doctors, PSWs, and many other frontline healthcare workers that are impacted by Bill 124 are demoralized, and we're experiencing high rates of attrition as a result of that. So, you know, I think number one, we need to have a, a strong health human resources strategy that includes, you know, valuing healthcare workers the way they deserve to be, ensuring they have the mental health supports so that they can function at 100%, and then also making sure that every single member in our society that is capable to help our healthcare system is empowered to do so. And on this, I'm talking about foreign trained healthcare workers, which, you know, the government is now making some overtures about about accelerating that credentialing. But the first thing that they did in 2018 when they came to power was to cut many of the programs that were allowing, you know, family doctors who had been trained abroad to seek in and receive their credentials here in Ontario. So that's number one, a long winded number one, Nate. And I apologize for that. But, um, you know, the other thing that has been truly apparent is that throughout the pandemic and certainly over the last couple of months. There simply has not been a plan for COVID nineteen. There have been ingredients of a plan. We've got antivirals. We have vaccinations. But for example, vaccinations in Ontario have stalled now. Uh, you know, the booster rate is at fifty point two percent across the entire province on a weekly basis. The number of people getting the the proportion of individuals getting uh, boosted in this province is zero point one percent. As we're about to go into respiratory season, and there's, there's no health promotion communication going on around that. There's no strategy to increase that like there is in other jurisdictions. So that's a a big problem. We have have antivirals and people don't know what they are, how to access them. So anyways, we need health promotion strategies. We need 10 paid sick days. We need to make sure that primary care is empowered. We need to make sure that we fix long-term care. We need to make sure there's excellent access to home care so people can age with dignity in the place of their choice. I could go on and on and on forever.
0: Pause there though. Pause there because... On the federal side, I've got a colleague, Brendan Hanley, who I have a great deal of respect for and trust in because he was the chief medical officer of health in the Yukon and -hmm. sought out politics for many of the same reasons that you articulated in terms of making a bigger difference and addressing the, the bigger challenges for the healthcare system. And he's focused his efforts recently on ensuring that the federal government supports provincial governments in retaining and rehiring incentives. In developing support for mental health programs for healthcare workers themselves, and then taking steps to recruit and train more healthcare workers where they're needed most, including facilitating a smoother, more accessible process for foreign grads to get licensed in Canada. So many of the same measures that you've spoken about, but ensuring that there is federal support for these initiatives. You mentioned bill 124 that obviously undercuts any incentives and we should be actually layering on additional incentives to ensure that we are retaining individuals here. You mentioned though, at the close of your answer there, home care, accessible home care. And when I read that the, I think it was 17% at one point, it's maybe somewhere between 15 and 20%, the number of hospital beds taken up by people who actually are not in need, of hospital care, but in need of alternate levels of care, including potentially home care. And you now have the Ford government that is responding to that figure and that challenge and ostensibly responding to the ER crisis via this legislation by now saying we're going to take a hard line on ensuring that we can reallocate not healthcare resources, but we can reallocate patients to different parts of this province, to where beds are available and where resources are more readily available. And in principle, without any human element at all considered, one might think that, well, we're just gonna reallocate patients where we've got space. But obviously, there's a massive human element that has to be overlaid here for how we're ensuring that people are receiving the support that they need, not only in the healthcare system, but from their loved ones around them, and geographically that they understand that that matters. Being in your community, getting the care in your community, is a significant part of of an appropriate healthcare response. It seems particularly odd to me at the federal level, where a piece of legislation would have to go through significant review, not only by a parliamentary committee, but also then by the Senate. There's no Senate in Ontario. So it strikes me that parliamentary committees matter all the more. And yet this bill is being jammed through from what I can tell, from what I understand, without any parliamentary committee review and just going right to being enacted into law via the legislature. Is there some merit to this bill? What are the challenges to the bill? And is there going to be an opportunity for voices like yours
1: to ensure that the bill is improved? you're referring to the More Beds Better Care Act, you know, Bill 7. And it is so emblematic of the way in which the Ford government works, which is to repeatedly do nothing, realize that there's a crisis, panic, and then ram something through that doesn't address the real issues. And on this, you know, we have major challenges in our long-term care homes. They are understaffed. They don't have adequate access to resources. You know, we still have something like 15% of long-term care homes in Ontario that don't have air conditioning after we are coming out of an incredibly hot summer. We have the fact that, you know, reflecting on the last two and a half years of the pandemic, there were substantially poor health outcomes in for-profit long-term care homes than in not-for-profit long-term care homes. There are very good reasons for patients and their families to be wary about which long-term care homes they go to. And the long-term care homes themselves are experiencing these significant challenges that makes it difficult for them to open up every bed that they can in order to relieve the ALC crisis in our hospitals. None of those things have been addressed by the Ford government. And instead, as we are about to go into respiratory season, as you know, the Chief Medical Officer of Health reported this, you know, this week that we're removing essentially all COVID restrictions. The Ford government is now panicking and saying, well, there is one and only one solution, and that is to make patients pay. The Bill 7 essentially says that uh, patients who are deemed to be alternate level of care, which means they need services can't go home because the services they require cannot be provided at home, but they do not require the services of an acute care hospital. So they receive this designation, alternate level of care. Those individuals, you know, as they wait for a long-term care home, the hospital may go ahead and begin to make inquiries at long-term care homes, even outside of the choices that 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 individual and their family may have already made, may transmit their personal confidential health information without seeking their consent, may authorize admission to a long-term care home, that is not of the patient or their family's choice, again, without their consent. And then it opens up a pathway for families and patients to be charged up to fifteen dollars or $1,800 a day if they choose not to go you know, to one of these long-term care homes. We happen to have come to understand that, for example, in rural areas, individuals may be admitted to long-term care facilities up to 300 kilometers away from their homes, which has a devastating impact. On the social care and support networks of, of elder, elderly people in long term care homes. And at its very core, this policy enacts a number of measures without patient consent. And while the Minister of Long Term Care has said, well, actually, the patient can always say no, it's a no, you know, with the healthcare system holding a gun to the patient's head because it's not a free no they are looking down the barrel of of having to pay fifteen dollars or $1,800 a day in order to say no. And so, you know, everything that I have learned as a healthcare worker about shared decision making, informed consent, voluntary consent is fundamentally violated by this bill. And I think even if the consent issue was taken out of the picture, it just is, it, it is a bill that is truly lacking any compassion. And it is a solution that does not strike at any of the root causes of the ALC crisis or the challenges that we face in in long-term care homes.
0: It it strikes me that there's a grain of truth in the need to address a reallocation of patients to where there are resources, but you can't do it in such a callous way. You, You can identify that as Maybe this is a partial answer to a much larger problem, but you've got to respect rural Ontario. You've got to respect the social and emotional care that, that is wrapped around people via their loved ones and their communities. And if you don't respect those considerations, then you're not actually addressing the problem at all. You, you might have this partial answer that is then creating any number of other un- unintended consequences. But you mentioned we are entering respiratory season and that means an uptick in flu cases, but it will almost certainly mean an uptick in COVID cases. You previously mentioned sort of the stalling of vaccination rates. You mentioned, but we're as explicit about the changes that the government's made in terms of the 24 hours versus five days in terms of the isolation period if you if you are experiencing symptoms and and you're testing positive for COVID. The changes were made by the government, but the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Kieran Moore, who is announcing these changes. You have said, with your own healthcare background, the government is throwing in the towel when it comes to protecting Ontarians from the pandemic with specific reference to this new guidance. What should the guidance be, do you think, going forward into the fall? And do you think this is guidance that is ultimately grounded in the science coming out of Public Health Ontario, or is this a political decision?
1: So... Just to provide one clarification, I think that, you know, the, this government has thrown in the towel on managing the pandemic, period, not, not specifically about, about this guidance. You know, listen, Nate, there is an enormous appetite for us to have an end game for COVID-19. And we need to plan for that. There, there's no doubt about that. And, and I share that appetite as well. But we need to do it in the right way. And to me, a pandemic endgame needs to be like a toolbox that offers multiple layers of protection. And in my mind, these are these are what those layers should be. You know, number one, we need to have adequate testing. And that's not happening. Either, you know, both with rapid testing, people are finding it increasingly more difficult to get access to testing. Uh, PCR testing is almost impossible to get. And no one is reporting their testing to anyone. So we, you know, we don't, we're failing on testing. We need to have adequate staffed beds for the inevitable cases of severe cases of severe COVID nineteen that you know are bound to happen. But we don't have adequate staff beds. We need an adequate number of healthcare workers, and we haven't addressed that either. We have a severe shortage, you know, on that front. We need adequate levels of vaccination, and we have very high levels of first and second doses of the COVID nineteen vaccine. But as I mentioned, we've stalled on the on, you know on third doses of the booster, so we're failing on that front as well. We need to have ready access to antivirals. Most people don't know what Paxilvid or Evusheld are. They don't know whether they would ever be eligible for that. They don't know where to go to determine their eligibility for that. And they they don't know where to find the medication. So we're failing on that front. And then we need to have sound, thoughtful, and complete public health guidance. So the guidance that came out, you know, earlier this week said, you know, it's no longer required to isolate for five days. If you're improving for 24 hours and you don't have a fever, then you can return if you have COVID, you know, you know, even if you're COVID positive, even if the rapid antigen test is is positive, which correlates with a high degree of infectiousness, by the way. Um, And all you have to do is just keep wearing a mask. So, you know, in my mind, as we're about to enter school season, with this guidance, we will be sending children back who are COVID positive. And all they have to do is have some improvement in their symptoms and wear a mask 100% of the time. Well, how do you, how do you how, if you are a teacher, how do you enforce that? How do you even track that your kid who you know has COVID-19 is wearing a mask for the full 10 days? If I was an employer, I would, I would be wondering right now, how am I supposed to keep my other workers safe when I know that I will have COVID-19 positive individuals in the midst? The guidance that we got from the Chief Medical Officer of Health was, you know, certainly in schools, we're going to have enhanced hand hygiene, we're going to have enhanced environmental precautions, which, you know, means, you know, hand hygiene is hand sanitizer, uh, enhanced environmental precautions means wiping a Lysol desk, a, a Lysol wipe across a desk for, a, you know, a respiratory illness that we all know is airborne. And then he finally alluded to the fact that, you know, we've got ventilation in all of the schools. but. The ventilation has been implemented rather haphazardly, rather poorly. And, you know, having like a a HEPA filter that's been purchased from Costco, right, in an overcrowded classroom, when kids will literally, you know, Nate, I think you have kids, I, I'm afraid I don't. But from from my experience in the emergency department, like a child will, who is sniffly and coughing will literally look you in the eyes, aim and then and then cough They're kids, right? You can't ask them, you can't reliably expect them to maintain six foot physical distancing and masks 100% of the time. It, it, you know, the guidance that we have is, it, it simply isn't complete. What are, What are kids COVID positive kids supposed to do when they're eating lunch? there has to be an end game. And there is a way to get there. But we have to have all of the pieces in place for all of these, maybe not 100% of these layers, but for most of these layers, it requires a, not necessarily perfect, but a far more complete response than we have right now. And so it is on the basis of that, that I'm, I'm quite concerned as we're going into the fall season, especially as it gets cooler, especially as we head indoors, especially as school resumes. Uh, As we predictably know, there'll be more influenza, more RSV, more COVID 19, more gastrointestinal illnesses. And at a time when our ERs are overwhelmed, our hospitals are overwhelmed, and our long term care homes are overwhelmed, something has to give. We can't just say, I'm tired of the pandemic, let's let her rip. And that is what the Ford government has done.
0: You mentioned the need for widely available testing and adequate testing. And it does strike me. as intuitively obvious that I wouldn't want to return to the workforce. I wouldn't want my kid to return to school if we are infectious, regardless of what we're infectious with, if we are infectious, because that will have knock-on consequences for other families, for other workers, and for society in general. And so rapid tests are not perfect, of course, but they do provide a screening tool, an important screening tool related to infectiousness. And I would be more comfortable sending my kids back to school, as an example, if they tested positive for COVID. If they then tested negative on a rapid test, and if they tested negative, then maybe that becomes my bright line to then send them back into the classroom. Because having a six-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, I have said too many times, cough into your arm and not into my face. And and we're we're still working on that one. And So I, I do think kids come back with anything and everything from daycare and school, and they are going to get sick in many cases, regardless of the precautions we take, not specific to COVID, but where we can take some basic precautions and rapid testing seems like a very obvious tool to have available, we should take them. And especially where those interventions come at little to no cost. Whereas, you know, people rightly, I think, point to masks in schools and say, oh, there's a, there's a cost to communication for kids and that if we can eliminate that, that would be better for kids. I think that's probably true. And so not all measures like rabbit tests come at what I look at as a, a, a near nil cost other than a, a small financial one. There are almost certainly more obvious ways. You mentioned better ventilation systems in workplace settings and schools. That seems like another. It's financial, yes, but otherwise a nil cost to us going about our, our lives and living our lives as we want to. I, I have to reflect too on our own communication because I think we ought to probably send better communication after the riding. And now that we have an expansion of eligibility for vaccines and boosters, and we have, as you say, antivirals that are available and just better educating constituents about that is a valuable thing that even I can do with the resources I've got at the federal level. Now, we've talked about the acute challenges in front of the healthcare system today. And obviously those conversations are gonna take up the bulk of our time and energy and, and your time and energy at the provincial level. To address, but even at the federal level, there are conversations I mentioned with with my colleague Brendan Hanley and other colleagues about how do we support provinces in addressing these acute challenges. There are also longstanding large challenges to the healthcare system. I'm going to give you a quote from Tommy Douglas. Okay, Let's well, see. I, I just it. want your all right. Yeah. So yeah. this is in 1982. He is saying this, so this is very late after he's already been a champion for Medicare, and he says, "When we began to plan Medicare." we pointed out that it would be in two phases. The first phase would be to remove the financial barrier between those giving the service and receiving it. The second phase would be to reorganize and revamp the delivery system. And of course, that's the big item. It's the big thing we haven't done yet. And then I'm reading this book that, uh, he was a podcast guest previously, he's a constituent and he's someone I trust a great deal in the healthcare space, Irfan He gave me the advice to read Riding the Third Rail, which is the story of Ontario's health Services Restructuring Commission, 1996 to 2000. It's, you know, it's actually really interesting reading. It doesn't sound by the title that it might be so interesting. But they write in relation to the reorganization and revamping of the delivery system that Tommy Douglas is mentioning. They say, we still haven't done it. And they're writing in the early 2000s. And I'm not sure we've done it, even sitting here in 2022. So as you look at some of the bigger picture challenges that we confront with healthcare. Are you looking at that that second phase of reorganizing and revamping the delivery system, and how we might provide more efficient healthcare for Canadians and, and better service ultimately?
1: Truthfully, it's all I was thinking about uh, until until COVID nineteen happened, and then and then we've been in crisis mode. But I mean, there's so many changes that we need to achieve, and some of those changes can you know can come from the federal level. Uh, some of them need to come provincially, and and you know we all need to work together certainly you know when i think in terms of our publicly funded healthcare system even compared to other countries around the world that are two tier as a purport, as a per capita proportion we actually spend less on public healthcare it, to me that speaks to the need for us to invest more in our public healthcare system and that is actually in stark contrast to what Doug Ford is you know is now only Barely implying and, and almost saying outright, which is that you know we need to start moving towards a for-profit, privatized uh, you know healthcare model. I actually think you know we need to double down and invest more in our public healthcare system, uh, both in the services that we already offer and then the additional services that other countries are offering in their public systems, and and we are not. You know we have a long way to go towards offering pharmacare to including dentistry, which is, you know, teeth, last time I checked, teeth, are a part of our body. And our dental care has a profound impact on our, on our generalized uh, well-being. And we need to make sure that people have have ready and universal access to mental health care. So, you, you you know, amongst other things. So those investments need to happen. And and certainly help from our federal partners would be incredibly welcome. And I know that the current liberal government is is working very hard. I believe you may be able to say more on this to help with those initiatives. You know, the other thing is, you know, our healthcare system is not very good about about looking at preventative healthcare. Part of that is, you know, we've been in some form of crisis mode, actually, for a very long time. I think the other part is that the ability to show the benefits from preventative healthcare take longer than a single election cycle. Uh, exercising for 30 minutes a day, three to five times a week, uh, will not have a substantial impact on cardiovascular mortality before the next election for either yourself or myself. And yet at the next election, our feet will be held to, to, you know, to the fire to justify you know, why we are investing in those programs. But you know, we need to be bold, we need to be courageous, and we need to be willing to, in my opinion, do the right thing and, and invest in, the, in, you know, in preventative healthcare. Um, and focus on that
0: when you mention the need to invest a greater degree in healthcare, i've been reading also reports of the ontario hospitals association and they highlight that hospital system ontario is the most efficient in canada on a per capita basis and and they go on to say attempts to squeeze out any more perceived hospital inefficiencies with existing system structure and capacity will likely worsen hallway health care the very real risk is that access to hospital care will become even more difficult and wait times will continue to rise. And so there is a need to become more efficient, probably outside of the hospital space. There's certainly a need to look at innovation and efficiencies across the board regardless. But at the same time, and what you're pointing to is the need to invest in care to ensure that we get better outcomes. And if we're looking at other jurisdictions, if we're looking at jurisdictions, even within Canada, we need to make sure that we are investing a greater degree and the federal government ought to be there to support provincial governments in, in doing that as well. We are going to get into a, I think, a bit of a battle as between federal and provincial governments around strings and what sh- what strings should be attached. you maybe turn your mind to these questions through your master's of public policy or otherwise in the healthcare space. but. I think it's fair to say at the federal level, I have this sentiment, I think the sentiment is shared by by many colleagues, which is if we're gonna write new and large checks, which we want to write for the sake of improving healthcare, there's gotta be better accountability on what the outcomes are attached to those dollars. Because in the previous round of bilateral health accord conversations and negotiations, we saw a focus at the federal level of affordable prescription drugs, mental health and home care three worthy goals to address of course i have no idea sitting here today how those federal dollars contributed to those three priority areas and how we improved outcomes I, i i have no idea how to track that or how to articulate you know how the spending led to better outcomes that obviously has to change but i also understand that the provinces are balking at even the idea of a new dedicated mental health care transfer even though mental health is a serious issue we need funding for it but they don't want strings. They don't want constraints. They want to be able to take the money for healthcare and spend it as they deem fit. And there are there's a value to that as well, because not all healthcare systems are the same and have the same needs across this country. So where do you land in that conversation to say, should there be significant strings, or do you think there should be greater
1: flexibility? I sincerely hope that there will be strings, Nate. As I reflect on how things have gone under under the last four years with the Ford government, and I think about the overtures that our premier is making to you know our prime minister for for increased health funding, I have to imagine that he is in and our premier is in an incredibly difficult negotiating position. For the last two fiscal quarters, he has underspent by billions of dollars on healthcare. He has instead used billions of dollars to do things like refund license plate stickers. And now he's stepping forward and saying, I simply don't have the money to do what I need to do in healthcare. And at least the way our financial accountability office works at this stage in the game, of the, you know, in quotation marks, healthcare dollars that have been spent, I'm not even in a position to be able to guarantee that those dollars were spent on healthcare. So, you know, I sincerely hope that any, you know, additional funds will come with some strings attached. My caveat to that is that healthcare is an incredibly dynamic thing. And so there should be strings attached, but I would hope that there would be enough flexibility so that those funds can be moved to different pots within the healthcare system. So for example, if uh, there is a massive investment in mental, you know, for mental healthcare and and it's deemed in, you know, in in an acute moment, we're in a massive wave of COVID-19 and we need to Utilize some of those funds to pay more nurses. I would hope that there would be some allowances for for that kind of reasonable flexibility. And I would be entirely in support of you know checks and balances to ensure that even those diversions are done in a in a responsible manner. Certainly, this government has 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 given strong evidence for the need for you know for some strings to be attached. The other thing that I wanted to say, Nate, before I forget is you know you had been asking me about the kind of changes that we need to see in the healthcare system on a long-term basis. And I would be absolutely remiss if I did not mention the significant efforts that we need to make in primary care. 15% of our population does not have a primary care provider. And many of the rest who do, do not have, you know, still cannot readily access that primary care provider. And ideally we need to go even further than that and not just have access to primary care provider but a, an integrated team of providers that includes nurses. It includes dietitians and social workers and mental health care providers. And that will go a long way towards assisting us in focusing on preventative care and also relieve so much of the burden on our health care system. Because, you know, as a family doctor myself, our scope of practice is actually enormous. And when I worked in, you know, Northern Ontario and the Northwest Territories, I mean, I didn't just refill prescriptions and, and, and you know, titrate people's cholesterol. I worked as a hospitalist, I delivered babies, I worked in emergency departments, and I was trained for all of those things. And our family doctors are trained for all of those things. And they bring immense value. And I would hope that they can, you know, that we can address that issue, which would go a long way towards making sure that our hospitals can focus on the things that only hospitals can do. In that vein, we need to make sure that our home care services are adequately supported and our long-term care homes are adequately supported. So sorry for that, that diversion.
0: I've I've only delivered one baby, and I <laughs> wow. wouldn't be able to train. I wouldn't be able to train anyone else on it, other than to say <laughs> adrenaline takes over and you'll be fine.
1: <laughs> Congratulations! It was my
0: second, man. and he, he came. Sorry. He came so fast. It was at Michael Guerin, actually, the local, our yeah. local yeah. hospital, and yeah. it, we got there at five in the morning. We didn't go to the emergency department, though. We were walking through the main entrance towards the elevators because the birthing center. Is I think on the seventh or eighth floor, I can't remember. Yeah. And anyway, halfway down the hallway, and it was empty because it was five a.m. And Crawford came faster than any of us expected, and we're yeah. calling for help. And you know, I got soft baseball hands and got <laughs> him, and the, and then the gurney came around the yeah. corner right at the right. You know, that's amazing. After I passed Crawford over to Amy, and it was cool. It was. I, you know, I remember bits and pieces and flashes of, but as I say, adrenaline generally takes over, and you do what you need to do. What a story! You mentioned the, <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned a number of different long-term reforms needed in the healthcare system. It does strike me that as I'm reading this book, which I guess was published in 2005, and there are reports out of the Senate and a, a Royal Commission, and many of the same lessons here. I mean, this is from 2005, and here's the, the list. This is referencing the Standing Senate Committee on Social Affairs, Science and Technology. Their list is to address the aging of the population and its potential effects on the provision and financing of healthcare, the increasing demand for and cost of new therapeutics, including drugs health human resource issues, including shortages of physicians and other health professionals, especially in remote, rural, and small communities, inadequacies of health information management, meeting the particular health needs of indigenous people, disease trends, the reemergence of old diseases and the appearance of new ones, rebalancing approaches to preventative measures affecting health in the long-term with short-term imperatives of providing sickness care. And then they're adding to this, the commission would add mental health services and home care. That's a pretty comprehensive list of things that existed that needed to be addressed then and need to be addressed now and federal and provincial governments need to work together to invest more certainly to make sure that we're directing resources in the right places certainly and to make sure that we are addressing these challenges and reforming the healthcare system for the long term i wouldn't say once and for all because i'm sure yeah. there will be additional reforms that are needed down the road but we can't i don't want to wake up 20 years from now and have a conversation with you and say, well, this list includes the aging of the population and preventative health care and mental health and home care and labor shortage. I, I, we just have to finally come to terms with some of these issues.
1: Yeah, you're uh, you're absolutely right. And um, we've known about these issues for a very long time. I've articulated, you know, I think one of the reasons that it's, that it's difficult to implement solutions, the healthcare system is incredibly complex and and the solutions that are required cannot be accomplished at the snap of a finger. But we need to be courageous. You know, I think there's another element to this too, and it's one of the the reasons that I'm so proud to sort of step forward and 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 fight for our healthcare system. And and by the way, I don't say this in any way at all to to sound disparaging. And that even as I say that, I realize that that doesn't that's that's not that doesn't sound very good. But in Ontario, healthcare is the number one most expensive line item in our budget, and yet. 99% of our politicians are lawyers, economists and business people. And they bring immense immense value to the table. But you know, even at you're myself- only you're only saying
0: that because I'm a lawyer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I know your background and you're you're far <laughs> more, far more than a lawyer and an <laughs> incredibly impressive and inspiring individual, Nate. So, but you know, all these people, myself included, with my healthcare background, we all come with our biases. And especially when we're not in the midst of a healthcare crisis that is threatening to cripple everything, which COVID-19 has done several times, you know, there are many other pressing issues, and we all resort to our biases. You know, if there is unprecedented inflation, if there are challenges in hiring in businesses, business people will understandably speak out loudest about those things. Economists will speak out most loudly about the economic challenges that we see. And I think part of the challenge has been that even though healthcare is the number one most expensive item in Ontario, we have not had healthcare workers there to bring their perspective and to amplify voices that are screaming for help every single day, but it's not comfortable for individual patients to speak about their personal health, to speak about the individual challenges and circumstances that they face. And one of the reasons that motivated me to run for politics isn't just because I'm a healthcare worker, it's because specifically I'm a healthcare worker that works in the emergency department. And the unique thing about the ER is people turn to the ER when they have nowhere else to go, not just for healthcare. They come to the ER when they have nothing to eat when they have nowhere to live, when they're experiencing domestic violence, when there are failures in environmental policy. Last summer, when we had unprecedented heat waves, forest fires like we've never seen before, the sky had turned completely orange, and the emergency departments filled up with people who had respiratory illnesses. In the ER, we see how public policy and government has failed across all of the policy domains. And I hope that that can be a unique perspective that I bring. And through clinical work, a constant source of motivation to make sure that we address not just the healthcare system, not just healthcare utilization, but making sure that we have strong policy in all areas. And when I campaigned, the liberal motto was, you know, the choice is yours. And all of my literature instead said, all policy is health policy. Because, you know, Interesting. If want, yeah, if we want to achieve, phys- you know, true physical, emotional and social well-being, we have to get policy right in every single policy sphere, including economic policy, right? 10 paid sick days is a phenomenal example of that. Uh, we need to get housing right, we need to get climate change right, we need to get education right. All of that-
0: You're right though, you're you're bang on. Clean air is healthcare policy. Labor policy, when it comes to 10 basic days is healthcare policy. When you look at ODSP rates, that's exactly. ultimately healthcare policy. When you look at the addressing homelessness, that's healthcare policy. When you look at moving away from the criminal justice system to address people who use drugs towards what a healthcare approach. It is all health policy. And so I'm glad you put that on your literature. I'm glad, by the way, you were willing to make the campaign your own, because I actually think that's what we need more of in politics. We need a united team of people fighting for the same values and for common cause in terms of the election platform. But we all need to articulate these values to our communities in a way that speaks to our communities, in a way that speaks to us and in getting involved in politics. And so you took the ideas that you were running on as a liberal and you made them your own.
1: Thanks. Nate. And, and, you know, I, I want to acknowledge you, too, because I know, you know, you've been very enlightened in your approach to many of these policy areas. You know, you spoke about about, you know, approaches to, to drugs and the opioid crisis and, and that kind of thing. And and, you know, I, I truly salute those efforts because, you know, we need an all hands on deck approach to address this parallel epidemic that has been, frankly, forgotten as we've grappled, you know, appropriately grappled with, with, you know, the grips of COVID-19, but so many young people are passing away from not, sorry, take that back. So many people period from all walks of life and all ages across all socioeconomic strata are passing away um, from the opioid crisis. So, you know, thanks for your advocacy on that. You you mentioned
0: though, young people, it's not only young people, but it is a lot of young people. And what is, Startling in some ways, when you look at the mountains of financial resources we responded to the COVID crisis with, rightly so, to bridge individuals and businesses through the most difficult times, when we look at the rapid healthcare response, not perfect, but rapid healthcare response across levels of government, throwing jurisdiction to the wayside to just trying to get things done in response, when you look at the years lost... So the death toll is obviously higher from COVID than it is from the opioid crisis. It's still very high from the opioid crisis, Mm -hmm. but the number of years lost because younger people are disproportionately dying in the opioid crisis, it is startling that we don't have any commensurate level of response to that crisis. And instead we continue to have policies that get in the way. And I think at the federal level, we've seen significant shifts, not enough, but significant shifts in policy, that's important. and Much of the work now is actually, again, jointly federal-provincial, but to ensure that there is the on-demand treatment necessary and that the resources are there to ensure that we're providing a safer supply and the on-demand treatment to support people when they're ready to get the support that they need.
1: Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. It's it's not enough. It's, I'm pleased to see some, you know, some progress at at the federal level. I hope to see more, much more. Um, and vastly more at the provincial level. I uh, exactly. you know it just seems as though it's stagnated over here.
0: Well, I look forward, given the conversations that are coming, that are, have already begun, but are certainly coming in a more serious way on both healthcare reform, improving healthcare, strengthening our systems, but funding support from the federal government on healthcare. You mentioned the need to address the primary care challenge. Well, that was in our 2019 platform. Again, I think in our 2021 platform and when we look at increasing funding for healthcare from the federal level almost certainly that will be one of the priorities and so as we work through what the strings will be I, I look forward to staying in touch i look forward to learning from your healthcare perspective and the more that we think about all policy as healthcare policy i think the better off all policies will be so i i will take that frame of mind into my
1: own work in a more serious way too and i appreciate you joining me well, oh, the, the pleasure was entirely mine. You, you know, uh, I have admired your work for a long time. I thank you for for inviting me on the show. And and I look forward to many, many more of these conversations as we look forward. Agreed. Thanks, Adil. All right. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining me for this episode of Uncommons. As always, please leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. Stop what you're doing right now. Leave a positive review. It helps. We're actually aiming to do a live recording sometime in mid-November, so if you're interested in attending or have an idea for a guest or topic, reach out at info at beynate.ca. And otherwise, until next time.